um, at risk of maybe going one quote too far, let me quote Hamilton one more time before I hang it up for a while. My favorite, King George, who uh, is probably your favorite as well. He says, oceans rise, empires fall. We've seen each other through it all. And when push comes to shove, I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. You remember that quote. But the part about that is the oceans rise, empires fall. Look, King George thought everything was so secure, didn't he? These Americans, nothing's ever going to come of this. I'll get to own this country and Canada and South Africa and all the other places of the British Empire. I'll get to own these forever. But what he sings in that song is, look, oceans rise and empires fall. The things that look so certain in life, so secure, rise and fall like oceans and like empires. And as we're journeying through Scripture, as you already saw from that video, if we're halfway, Mark, if you can believe that or not, if you, are a, if you haven't read any Scripture, that is fine. Give yourself grace. But it's halftime, and if you come late to a football game and it's halftime, you still go in and watch the game. Jump, just jump back in wherever we are and start to read Scripture. As we come to this Scripture today, we see empires that are rising and empires that are falling. Here's the background, if I could just give it to you briefly. Under David, there was what we call, biblical theology calls, the United Kingdom which means David was able to get all of the tribes together, all of the 12 tribes together as one nation to establish worship in Jerusalem, to defeat all of the enemies of Israel, to bring in this beautiful time of peace. And then he gave the kingdom to his son Solomon, who loved women and wisdom, and at the end of his life turned away from the Lord, actually, and because of that, the Lord said to Solomon, this is 1 Kings 11, the Lord said to Solomon, I'm now going to rip this kingdom apart. And so the united kingdom under David and under Solomon now becomes the divided kingdom underneath Rehoboam and Jeroboam, which we're going to read about. Rehoboam took the southern kingdom, which is two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, but most importantly the land of jerusalem that land in the south was his that's why it's called the southern kingdom and then jeroboam took the northern kingdom uh, the southern kingdom is going to be called later on judah the northern kingdom is going to later on in the bible and the prophets going to be called israel and jeroboam takes the northern kingdom and 10 tribes with it so the 12 tribes divided into 10 and 2 but rehoboam southern kingdom getting the most important part, which is the land, and in particular, Jerusalem. Now, after that, these kingdoms are going to war with each other, but also they'll make treaties with each other to defend people that are actually against them, and they will survive for a number of years. This is probably 930-ish BC, so the northern kingdom will survive until about 722 BC when Assyria will come in and will capture the northern kingdom and take them away. The southern kingdom, they actually survived that threat. And they actually sur survived being besieged and all these kind of things. They, they survive all that until 586 B.C. When the Babylonians, they're going to come in and capture the southern kingdom. And that's when you see Daniel and all of these people taken away to Babylonia. That's what happens. That's that period of biblical history. Then they're going to be in exile for a while. 
after the edict from uh, Cyrus of Persia. We'll go into that later. They're going to come back, and that's where you'll see uh, Ezra. That's where you'll see Nehemiah. That's where you'll see a lot of the minor prophets all around that time. Now, that's all important because we get to this text, and we see these kingdoms start to break apart. Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And it's in this Bible. Why is this in the Bible? It's in this Bible to teach us your heart and my heart actually has the longing for the security of an everlasting king. Our hearts long for that. You know, there's so many things in this life that we think will bring us security. There's so many things that you think that will never change. For example, in the 70s, it it just never looked like the Steelers were not going to win just everything you know like it just looks some seasons like oh there's no way the warriors are ever going to lose this but nothing's secure the longer you live we realize that don't you you finally see that couple and they get divorced and you're like no not not them if i was betting on anybody i would never thought never thought they would get divorced i would have never thought the roman empire would fall if you were living in rome you would, we all feel pretty confident right now. We, we can't possibly fathom America not existing. There's no promise that it's going to continue to exist. The Third Reich looked pretty powerful and looked like it would dominate the world for a small period of time. So did the Ottomans. So did the Romans. Denominations sometimes look so secure. This denomination is going to exist forever. But about every 80 years, there's a denominational garage sale, and they tend to break up. That's the way it works. Oceans rise. Empires fall. The one kid in the youth group you thought, they would, they'll never walk away from the faith, end up walking away from the faith. And you know what that means? Our hearts are longing for something that is secure, something that's not transitory. Because this little globe that we live on is spinning, according to NASA, at 1,037 miles an hour. You are moving right now at that rate of speed. And there's something in our hearts living on this globe that wants to find something that's secure. But we can't. Your looks fade. Your uh, athleticism fades. The money you made, you lose in the market. Uh, the people or the things that you were banking on fail. Maybe that church of your childhood home went liberal. And, and, and things are just changing all the time, and we're longing for something secure. Why? Because we need to know that we're going to be okay. Uh, that's why in John chapter 8, Jesus came, and he's talking with the people, and he says, look, you are enslaved to sin. And you are serving your father, which is the devil. Now think about that. <laughs> well, that. That's not the sermon that we would normally preach. You are serving your father, the devil. And they get mad at him. And they said, how could you possibly say that? And he said, I'm the, I'm the descendant of Abraham. And they basically say, you're not even 50 years old. How could you possibly know Abraham? And you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 8? He said, there's some scenes in the bible i think i wish i was there for that i hope in heaven i can like rewind that and just watch that moment and this is one of those where jesus looked at him and said before abraham was i am that's the astounding claim of christ before abraham was 
I am. And they couldn't cope with that. Remember what they did? They picked up stones to stone him. And he fled and hid himself, ironically enough, in the temple. And what would it take for you to want to stone Jesus? Maybe it's the claim that, hey, everything exists through me and for me and by me and because of me. But you're looking at him in that time and age, and you're like, you're a 30-year-old Jew from Nazareth who's not much to look at. We thought the Savior of the world was going to be bigger, at least 6'2 or 6'3. We thought you were going to be broader shoulders. We thought you would come with all this might and military power. We're so, you're the King of Kings. You're the Messiah. And that's the claim of Jesus. And for those who knew him, they said, yes, this is the King that we've been longing for. We'll talk about that more in a second. First of all, your heart's long for the security of an everlasting king that's the first point we're already through the first point people cheer up uh here's the second point but we have the folly of following man not our everlasting king we fall into the folly of following man earthly kingdoms so let's read about these two kingdoms first rehoboam and then second jeroboam first uh, kings chapter 12 verse 1 rehoboam went to shechem for all israel had come to shechem to make him king and as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and they called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father, which would be Solomon, made our yoke heavy. Let me pause there. Uh, Solomon was taxing them, taxing them, taxing them, taxing them, because he had to get money to build the temple somehow. So they... Actually, the kingdom, if you think about it this way, the kingdom split over a tax problem. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and the heavy yoke on us, and we will serve him. And he said, go away for three days and come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer these people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them, and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him. He took the counsel of the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him, and he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who said, lighten the yoke your father put upon us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to the people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I'll discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam. That was all private counsel. Now they come back after three days and they're gonna have the revelation of what he's decided. And they came the third day, and the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, forsaking the counsel the old men had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I'll discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for as a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah, Ajah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. 
here's what we see with Rehoboam we see that we're actually a lot like him I mean the folly of following this guy was going to lead to Israel's downfall but before we just condemn Rehoboam for being this bad biblical character we're a lot like Rehoboam because he found advice from the old men and it didn't fit his narrative and it didn't increase his pride and it didn't stroke his ego so he went and found other advice from other people how many times when somebody tries to give you advice and you don't like it even though it might be true do you just immediately discount it i'll go find somebody else who will tell me what i actually want to hear that's the first way we're like them the second way we're like them is this we would rather be served than to serve the option from the old men was this if you serve these people if you as a king give yourself to them they will love you forever but no 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 we want people to be a means to our end we want to be served so most of the people that we interact with in life we view as simply transactions the waiter the person you're trying to get a business contract with a lot of times your spouse a lot of times your friends I have this I need this I need you to do this for me I need you to serve me somehow and if you don't I will double down that's the third way we see that Rehoboam once he was challenged by Jeroboam and the lot got incredibly defensive are you open to correction are you open if, if friends or people come to you and say you know I've got I really have been meaning to talk to you about this do you say okay let's talk about it or do you say no you have no idea do you immediately get defensive that's what Rehoboam did in verse 12 in particular and then we have Jeroboam so Rehoboam the southern kingdom Jeroboam the northern kingdom look at verse 25 then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there and he went out from there and built Penuel and Jeroboam said in his heart now the kingdom will turn back from the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord to Rehoboam king of Judah and they'll kill me and return to Rehoboam king of Judah so the king took counsel made two calves of gold how did he learn to make two calves of gold well if you look all the way back in chapter 11 verse 40 Solomon rose to kill Jeroboam and Jeroboam took off to Egypt and so somewhere in Egypt while Jeroboam is there people would have said to him oh we remember your type before you left us and you fled back to your dirty little land uh, we remember you and we remember that y'all made a bunch of golden calves as your gods because we have gods like that and you made calves like that and your people used to worship those golden calves they're the ones that actually brought you out of Egypt. So Jeroboam would have learned that in Egypt, and he brought that practice back to Israel. He makes these golden calves, verse 28, and he said to people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. We've seen that narrative before. He set one in Bethel, he put the other in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people, went as far as Dan to be before one. And he made temples on high places, and he appointed priests from among the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast 
on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar, and he did so in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made, and he went up to the altar that had been made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. So here's the lay of the land. What Jeroboam says is this, uh, if, if you keep going back to Jerusalem to worship, because that's where worship was established, that's where the temple was, then people are going to go back to Jerusalem and they'll say, ah, oh, we forgot how much we liked it here. Uh, the colonnade, you know, all this so beautiful, the, the trade winds, being on top of the mountain, we forgot that. Maybe we should go back with Rehoboam. So he says, no, no, so I've got to keep them distracted. So I'll build new temples and I'll build one in Bethel, which is kind of the southern part of the northern kingdom. And I'll build one in Dan, which is up above the Sea of Galilee. And there we'll remember our real heritage. And we'll have feasts. And we'll remember how God brought us out of Egypt with these calves. And actually, if you go to Israel today, you can see the very exact place where Jeroboam built that altar. Matter of fact, I think we have a couple pictures of it. There it is. This What's in the Bible is, this is actually historical. Like, this, these are real places in real people. I think sometimes we forget that. This is the actual altar that Jeroboam built in Dan. You dr- go to Israel, and you can see it. Where that metal part is, those four horns, those are horns on top, which would have been the actual altar where they would have sacrificed. And then you see past this tree, you can go right up those stairs, and right after you go up to the stairs, that's where the golden calf was. And so you were sacrificing to the golden calf. It's the actual altar and temple that Jeroboam built. And you know the fascinating thing about it? The whole thing is faced to the north, so its back is turned away from Jerusalem. They had gone that far. We're going to turn our backs away from Jerusalem, and we're going to build our own temple and establish our own feasts if you think about it we're a lot like jeroboam as well how are we like rehoboam and jeroboam let me go a little bit further here what did rehoboam value power he had to have power he had to have control he had to have people serving him and if we're honest uh almost everybody in this room you know not everybody southern raised white evangelical Christians we've had a problem with power for a long time friends we love it we love to be the majority we love to run the culture we love we we love to have political power Uh, we love to have that kind of way we love for people to serve us and we want power and we want control now sometimes you think control is controlling no, power and can control can come from different ways. Like, you could want power and control because you keep to yourself, and you never put yourself in a place where you'll have to be vulnerable. That's controlling. You never put yourself in a place where you'll have to get involved with the mess of somebody's life. You control your life by keeping it nice and neat. You keep far away from ever have to practicing faith or repentance. You try to control everything you can so you don't look bad. And then some of us just actually really love power, have to be in charge, have to have our opinions known. Well, if it's not 
that temptation, which we see in Rehoboam, it's the temptation which we see in Jeroboam, which is not power, but it's relevance. I've got to be relevant. I have to have people like me. I have to have people come to me. I can't lose my kingdom. Matter of fact, I'll establish all these things to make me relevant. I'll make up stuff to make me popular. And as Christians, most of us are great with Christianity until Jesus asks us to do something which isn't popular. Like, I don't know, uh, keep sexuality within the bounds of marriage, for example. Do all things in moderation, for example. Some things that just aren't popular in this culture. Here's what Jesus does. He does give you power, but he gives you power to repent, and he gives you power to ask for forgiveness. And he does give you relevance, but he gives you the relevance by being peculiar. By having this world look at us and say, those people are strange. They give their lives and their money and and their time and their efforts to bringing peace. They forgive people so easily. They love people. They take meals to people in needs. They, They do all these things. Do they not know the world doesn't do that? So why is this in, why is this passage in the Bible? Well, it shows us the security of an everlasting king. It shows us the folly of following man. And it also makes our hearts yearn for the true kingdom and the reality of it. You know, uh, David, 1 Kings 7, David came to the Lord and he asked if he could build a temple for the Lord. And the Lord said to him, I'm not really in the business of negotiating this kind of stuff out. So the answer is no. but I'll have Solomon build it because you have way too much blood on your hands. But I'll tell you what, David, I'll do something else. I'll give you one of your sons in your line will be the everlasting king. So from your lineage, one day will be the king of all kings. And as you read about that in uh, Isaiah in chapter 11 and chapter 40 and others, chapter 60, as you read about the prophets talking about this everlasting king that's going to come from the line of David, you see he's going to be the king that will actually heal all of the nations, actually put all things back together again. All of this imaginatory language where lion and lamb will lay down together, where the swords will be beat into plowshares, where all things will be made new again. And it's going to happen through you, David. And he's going to be called the Messiah, which is why it's so shocking when blind Bartimaeus heard that Jesus was there. He's blind, couldn't see him heard that he was there and he said Jesus son of David you're the one you're the one that has been promised to come you're the one that is coming to heal all things you're the one who's coming in to usher in the kingdom and the reality of the kingdom so last point there's a reality of the new kingdom of Christ that lives out today Uh, Fedor Dostoevsky you all know I'm a big fan of Dostoevsky Um, he wrote you need to read uh, his four classic works, uh, The Idiot, Crime and Punishment, Brothers Karamazov, and The Possessed, which in Russian means demons, basically. And uh, here's what Dostoevsky says in The Possessed. It's, it's written, let me just tell you what it's about so you don't have to read it. Uh, it's, it's written uh, basically about Russian politics in the 1860s where everybody was fleeing and becoming disillusioned with Russian politics. And so Dostoevsky wrote, basically if you do this 
uh, it's kind of a political track to say uh, the possessed, the demons are going to take over this world, and this guy comes into this town and with these spiritual forces takes it over, and it's kind of this uh, dystopic, awful thing that happens after that. So Dostoevsky writes in the, oh, sorry, up there. He says, the one essential condition of human existence is that man should always be able to bow down before something infinitely great. That's why no matter who's in office, your heart's not going to be settled. That's why no matter how many times your team wins the championship, your heart's not going to be settled. Because you're made for something infinitely great. If men are deprived of the infinitely great, they will not go on living and die of despair. The infinite and the eternal are as essential for man as a little planet on which he dwells. I don't care what age or stage you are. We are made to live before something that's infinitely great. The true king of the true kingdom. Yesterday, Saturday morning, I don't know why they do this on Saturday. I guess they, I guess it's because they know you're going to be there. Uh, the, you know, people walk up and down the street and try to sell you stuff. And if it's Girl Scouts, it's just like, just take my money, I, you know. Um, this was the AT&T person. I don't know about your house, but at my house, when like the person knocks on the door on a Saturday morning, my family, we're like cockroaches. We just all go into hiding. Like, dang, we should not have opened those curtains that early. We need to like, you know, shut down. But, you know, I watched her walk by. She caught my eye. I was like, oh, I'm in it. And so I went and I was, uh, you know, trying to be nice. We're AT&T customers. So thankfully she couldn't upsell us anything. I was like, I own everything y'all are selling. So just stop. Let's just stop this now. And uh, we started talking a little bit, and uh, I can't help myself sometimes. And uh, she, I, she said, you're tired. And I said, yes, um, and this is not helping. But basically, I just flew in yesterday. I've got a wedding this weekend. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little tired. And she said, oh, was it work or pleasure? And I was at General Assembly all week long for the Presbyterian Church. She said, was it work or pleasure? I was like, work, definitely work. And uh, she said, oh, what's, what is, uh, what's General Assembly? And I said, um, well, uh, it's where I meet together with my colleagues. And she said, what do you do? And you know, over the years, I've got about five responses to that question. So I was like, oh, I'll go with option B today, uh, which is to say this. Uh, I will tell you what I do as long as you promise you're not going to judge me, which is everybody always gets so intrigued by that. And so they, they say, oh, I, no, I'm not going to judge you. And I'll say, I am a conservative. You have to say conservative. I am a conservative Presbyterian pastor. And you'll see him go, I, I, okay, I just judged him. Now I don't know what to do. But he told me not to judge him. I don't. And then almost, every, almost everybody will say, I wish I had something fulfilling like that. Almost everybody will say that. I went on. I said, oh, yeah, well, I was in a... General Assembly is where we meet with the other pastors, and uh, we pray together, and we talk, and we make some decisions, but there's a lot of friends I get to meet with from around the country and get to talk to them about how they're doing, and we uh, worship together, and she said, you know what she said? She said, oh my gosh, I just got chill bumps, and I said, I've never gotten chill bumps from going to General Assembly. Ever or presbytery, you know, I've just never gotten to that. And I said, maybe it's that cross that's around your neck. Maybe 
and I invited her to church. I don't think she's here today. But maybe she wants something that's infinitely great that she could be a part of. She wants some kind of kingdom where it's not about her getting rejection after rejection 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning walking down Middlebrook Road. Maybe she's longing. Maybe she got chill bumps because she just thinks, maybe there is another kingdom here that I'm missing and I long for it. That's why in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And all through the Sermon on the Mount, he says, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Chapter 13 of Matthew, the parables of the kingdom. And then John chapter 18, the kingdom of God is not of this world. In other words, it's not just about achieving power or relevance. This is something different. Friends, you're a part of that kingdom. Whether you know that or not, if you're a Christian, you're a part of that. I have a daughter that's uh, go, that's at Stanford, she's a rising sophomore, which I think most of you know. And in much to my chagrin, I have another daughter, not because of her existence, um, because in the fall, she's going to Alabama. And I hate Alabama. <laughs> Never like it. I was, I'm a Penn State fan. I think they're generally obnoxious. But you know what's going to happen? Come the fall, I'm going to the Auburn-Alabama game, and I'm going to put on the Alabama shirt, and I'm going to root for Alabama. Do you know why? I don't even know why they have an elephant for their mascot. There's so much I have to learn. But you know why? Because my daughter loves Alabama. So I will too. Unless she gets kicked out, and I'm quickly going to not love Alabama. But when you become a Christian, you learn to love the things that your father and his son love and you clothe yourself not with the jersey but you clothe yourselves with christ and you learn to love the poor because you don't naturally do but you learn to love the poor because jesus loves the poor and you learn to love the fatherless because jesus loves the fatherless and you learn to bring justice for the oppressed and whatever group you're in because that's what jesus loves and you learn to love forgiveness and repentance and generosity and kindness and you learn to love humility you grow in your sanctification by clothing yourselves with christ and rooting for the kingdom on this earth that jesus plays for and captains that's what we do it's the reality of a new kingdom with eternal purpose that you're a part of and very quickly two things it's a kingdom of healing and it's a kingdom made up of kids first of all let me read to you from matthew chapter 9 jesus went through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction and when he saw the crowds he had compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, harvest is plentiful, the labors are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out labors into this harvest. The labors are not missionaries. Love missionaries. They're not pastors. They're you. We're, we're the laborers. We're the ones that go out into this world and usher in a new kingdom. That's why Jesus said to the disciples, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go among the lost sheep of the Israel. Don't just hang out with your church friends all the time. They're easy. 
and said, go to the lost sheep of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You've received without paying, give without pay. The kingdom is a, healing, a kingdom of healing. So two quick things here. Maybe you need to today tell the Lord, if it's a kingdom of healing, where you're hurting, where your wounds are, what you need for him to heal, what you need for him to repair. And maybe you need to ask him to do it. And then let me go one step further. Maybe there's somebody that you know in your life, in your circle, in your family, that's deeply wounded. And maybe this week, part of bringing the kingdom here on earth is you go offer them the words of grace and peace, the encouragement they need that you don't think about yourself anymore when you walk into your high school. You think about who in this high school, who on this team, who in this business, who in this neighborhood needs to know that they're loved, that the kingdom is at hand and Jesus has come. Healing is a beautiful thing. Uh, Greg Bainey is a friend of mine. He used to go to Mitchell Road. Some of you might remember Greg and Tricia. He's a pastor. The great thing about General Assembly is I get to meet with friends. Um, I do a lot of that. And Greg uh, works now with the Indians in Chattanooga. And uh, he's Indian. You would never know it from looking at him. But uh, he didn't know his dad for years. He finally found his dad. And when he found him in the community, they said, oh, yeah, your dad is the drunk Indian. And he found his dad. And he was indeed Indian. And he was indeed drunk. And he found his dad. He dealt with that. They actually... Uh, reunited and solved and on his deathbed his dad he wasn't sure about his conversion his dad actually looked to greg and said nothing can separate me from the love of christ that's found I, that was those last words greg's working with the indian people up there in chattanooga and uh he found with the first prez chattanooga and he found in one of their like encapsulated vases where they show off stuff from the church we don't have that but some churches have that kind of thing he saw a communion set and it was the communion set that was used for the last communion given to native americans at blythe ferry blythe ferry is where the trail of tears started where we forced thousands thousands of indians to oklahoma and a lot of them didn't make it. It was an American genocide. And before they sent them off, First Press Chattanooga served them communion out of that. And Greg, he only has 20 people. He doesn't even have a church yet, but he's got about 20 people that are meeting with him, a Bible study, he's starting to start a church. He said to the pastors at Chattanooga, hey, when we have our first communion, can we use that set? And they said, absolutely, absolutely. Because it's a kingdom of healing. It's a kingdom where we remind each other. We're, we're going to hurt each other all the time in this world. But here around this table, mystic, sweet communion that reminds us that ultimately this kingdom is a kingdom of healing. And very quickly, it's a kingdom filled with kids. Here's what I mean by that. Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him... A child he put him in the midst of them and said truly I say to you unless you turn and become like children you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven so here's the challenge 
Go out, ask the Lord to heal you where you need it. Go provide healing for others, even those that have hurt you. And then also, let's live this week as kids in the kingdom. And you know what kids do? They imagine and they dream. Jake Patton, another friend of mine I saw at GA, I need to go to GA more because I get good stories. Another friend of mine, he's a pastor out in Texas, and this Ukrainian lady became a Christian from Ukraine. She married a Haitian guy. And friends, that's America right there, a Haitian and a Ukrainian living in Salina, Texas. And they ha- and became believers. I have a son. And uh, when the Ukrainian war broke out in February, February 20th or 24th, depending on... Uh, what historical document you want to pay attention to but either one late february when the ukrainian war broke out the son had a dream and the dream maybe a vision i don't know what you want to call it and he's just a little kid was that his uncle who was on the east side of ukraine would be with them in worship on easter sunday morning that was his vision and he started praying that way every night it's february late february Well, that couple in eastern Ukraine tried to leave and tried to flee. They got stopped at the border, and they said, no way, you can't go. You have to stay here and fight. You can't go with your family. And then they counted up his kids and realized, you have three kids, you can go. Apparently two, you had to stay, three, you could go. So they got through Ukraine, and they got into Poland, and then somehow they got to Spain. And somehow seven countries later, they made it to Mexico. And then after Mexico, they crossed legally by the way they crossed legally into texas and they made it to Celine, texas that family all the way from ukraine in just a matter of a few weeks they made it there on monday thursday and on easter sunday morning that little dream and vision of that little kid who everybody said no that's completely illogical there's no way that will work became a reality on Easter Sunday morning. What if we could live a little bit more like that? What if we could live as kids in this wonderful, wild kingdom of Christ, believing with imaginative hearts that our Father in heaven, if we're just open to it, would do some things that we couldn't possibly dream of otherwise? Not with our own efforts, but through his power and through his might, because God has transferred us as it says in colossians transferred us into the kingdom of his son where we find forgiveness of sins and imagine that kids forgiveness of sins in the kingdom of christ everything that you have or will do has been covered and paid for and a kingdom of forgiveness where God will make all things new and until he does, we get to bring the kingdom here on earth. Now let's go live that way. In the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you would remind us that uh, we are more than we think. Not in a self-grandizing way, but you have put us in this place with these families, with this situations these neighborhoods these jobs these places in schools so that we can be ambassadors 
for Christ. Kids in a new kingdom, if we try to follow, follow any person in this world, it will lead to our folly. But we, uh, we want to follow you, King Jesus, and we want to live differently. We want to live with the freedom that our sins really are covered and forgiven, that nobody can expose us or put us to shame. And we want to live like little kids bouncing on the knee of our Savior, the Son of David, the mystery of the King of Kings, saying that greatest in the heavens will be those who humble themselves like these little kids. May we live more childlike in our faith, more joyful. May we cry out to you, Father, this week more than we have this past week. And uh, will you one day bring us home, we pray in your name. Amen.